Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. On June 5th, armed men attacked worshippers at a Catholic church in the city of Owo, Nigeria. Scores of people were reportedly killed and many more injured. Attacks like this are rare in the southwest of the country, where Owo is located, but unfortunately common in northern Nigeria, which has long faced deep security challenges. My guest today, Idayat Hassan, is director of the Center for Democracy and Development in Nigeria. We kick off discussing this church attack, as well as another high-profile recent attack on a train in northern Nigeria. Idayat Hassan then describes how these attacks fit into broader patterns of insecurity in Nigeria. As she explains, there are a number of jihadist groups active in Nigeria, And in addition to ongoing jihadist insurgencies, parts of the country are also beset by armed conflict between farmers and herders and banditry by heavily armed organized criminal groups. The increasing insecurity in parts of Nigeria today comes less than a year ahead of major national presidential elections scheduled in February 2023. But, as Idiot Hassan explains, the candidates are not emphasizing the root cause of insecurity, which she forcefully argues stems from a broken judicial system. This episode gives you a useful and interesting perspective on security challenges in Nigeria, and it is produced in partnership with the Carnegie Corporation of New York as part of a series of episodes showcasing African voices on peace and security issues in Africa. All right, and now here is my conversation with Idiot Hassan, director of the Center for Democracy and Development in Nigeria. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. What we do know for certain is that these attacks were coordinated by men and they used both explosives and gun. And the gun power was very, very sophisticated. It was a heavy one, not commonly used by cult groups or even criminals, in petty criminals in Nigeria. So it suggests that this was possibly perpetrated by terrorists. And in Nigeria currently, we have at least four terror groups, if not more. And by these terror groups, I'm talking of jihadis. So we have the Islamic State in West African province, which in the last one month has claimed a lot of attack in 
places where they normally do not operate in Nigeria, but all still in the north of Nigeria. They've claimed attacks on a beer parlor where people, of course, a beer parlor in Nigeria, parlance means where people go to drink and eat some local pepper soup and relax, a relaxation point, really. Uh, they've bombed those places. They've also attacked in Taraba. So they've had a horrific state of attack since Ramadan in Nigeria and in places we were, which were not their usual enclave. At the same time, we still have the Boko Haram, known as Jas, but Boko Haram, colloquially aligned to their late leader, um, Abubakar Shekau. Uh, they've been decimated following the death of Shekau, which over, at least according to official figures, 30,000 of them have surrendered to the Bonu state government. But we do know that some of them, instead of surrendering, continue to fight, while some have moved to other parts of Nigeria. Uh, and so, of course, that means they will have dormant self available to be called upon. We also do have the Ansaru linked to the uh, Islamic, uh, to the Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghrib and the Dar es Salaam, minus other splinters groups within this set as formidable jihadist groups operating in Nigeria. And many people do think that this attack is actually perpetrated by jihadists and why will we think this way? One, of course, is that the headsmen who have been fingered to do that do not have a history of using explosives. Then the pattern of the attack previously is always in rural area. So you talk about communities on the road, this kind of Attacks. This is what they are actually known. This is what their modus operandi really has been. But we could not take away the fact that it could be some of these bandits aligned to the Addis hmm. who have perpetrated this attack. But it's very gory, it's worrying, and it's again taking the conflict beyond its normal notes, especially when you think about this being a terrorist heart attack into southern Nigeria, previously not impacted by terrorism. So the circumstances of this attack, as you said, suggests you know strongly that it was a jihadist group. Is it odd, therefore, that no jihadist group has yet claimed responsibility for the attack? I mean, you know, typically when churches in particular are attacked, groups kind of you know brag about it. Yeah, really. That's what we are actually waiting for. Like most of us analysts are waiting to see the next edition of the Al-Naba, uh, which of course is the Islamic State propaganda ma- um, machinery, where the Islamic State in West African province, Iswap, have claimed their previous attacks. Then also there is a likelihood, if it's done by others, to come through a video in coming days. But I'll also not be so surprised if we do not get an acknowledgement because the train attack, for instance. Explain the train attack that, uh, you know, was, was, I think, very deadly and, and horrific for the victims, but also terribly embarrassing for the government as well. Can you explain what happened? 
Yes, I think the Kaduna train attack is also is an is an a case an example in terms of who perpetrated such attack and if they actually claimed it. The Kaduna train attack, of course, happened at the tail end of March, twenty twenty two, and here explosive was used to blow out the the tracks and kidnap passengers over one sixty seven official passengers in the first class. Our cabins and other cabins, but emphasis on the first class cabin of the train moving from Abuja, the capital city of Nigeria, to Kaduna, which is actually the uh, seat of power in northern Nigeria as well. So it's okay for all the elite to have a home. And the government had sort of advertised this train as being the safer alternative to driving overland from Abuja, the capital, to Kaduna, the, the, the seat of power in the north. Yes, actually, this train is still, the, uh, it's, it's one of the achievements of the Buhari administration. But beyond it being the achievement of Buhari administration, in the last four years, it's been the only safe means of movement into Kaduna from Abuja, which ordinarily used to be a two-hour drive, which I do myself just to go for radio programs. These days, this has become really impossible. It's really become impossible, and the train is the only source. But this train was attacked. And even ahead of the train attack, like the weekend of the train attack, the airport was also attacked, leading to a complete grinding of movements in uh, of movement into Kaduna from Abuja, except you can brave driving it. But I think what is fascinating about this attack that immediately it happened. Many of us actually thought that the attack was perpetrated by the bandits. But later on, we discovered that while there might be a bandit element in the attack, but the mastermind were the jihadists. And these jihadists up till now except in terms of negotiation, like almost two months after, are just coming forward to make demands. They never in any way issue a statement claiming this attack. So if you look at the varied numbers of groups, their modus operandi, the fact that there are new entrants and there is actually a desire to be heard by these criminal groups a desire to make a statement, which I think they were able to make with the war attack and, of course, with the train attack. It's very worrying, and it fits into the multiple nodes of insecurity plaguing Nigeria, from northeastern Nigeria, where we have actually been battling the Boko Haram insurgency since 2009. Uh, more than 12 years after, this insurgency is yet to abate even though there has been official declaration that it is over a proclamation of victory. At the same time, in northern Nigeria, there has also been a um, heightened level of insecurity in what we call locally a banditry problems. So men in Gon, age ranging from eight years old, that's a child, with the oldest among the bandits just being in their mid-40s, are holding sway on communities, sophisticated weapons, wielding sophisticated weapons, and in groups of up to 100 or more, operating and sacking 
villages. Like they are, it's not just an ungoverned spaces, but they are, seem to be the Lord in those ungoverned spaces itself. And this has led to uh, more than a million out of school children in a region where they have the highest number of out of school children. Uh, out of school children, there has been an inability to plant or harvest crop during this period. So looming before us is a food security crisis because uh, the food basket of Nigeria is northern Nigeria, actually. The pepper, the onions, the beans, most of what is actually ate in other parts in southern Nigeria is planted in the northwest of Nigeria. In the same vein, the Edis and Farmers conflict in the north central or what we call the Middle Belt area, is also heightened. And in southeast Nigeria, we have a secessionist agitation led by the independent people of Biafra Mm. under the banner of the independent people of Biafra. And this group has now fragmented into five different tendencies. And they have even created their own security forces, which they call the Eastern Security Network. You're painting like a very complicated and dire security situation, not just in the northeast of the country, which has been the center of the insurgency, but in many other regions as well. And it seems that this seemingly worsening security situation in much of Nigeria is coming at a key political inflection point in Nigeria as well. We have elections coming up next year in Nigeria, next February, uh, I believe, major elections uh, in which we have two new candidates that will uh, vie for the presidency with the current president, uh, Buhari, stepping down, having been term limited out of office. Uh, Presumably, security will be top of the agenda in these candidates' campaigns. I'm interested to learn from you how, if at all, the two major parties and their candidates, on the one hand, Bullet Tinubu, the all-progressive Congress, which is the ruling party, their candidate, and on the other hand, Atiku Abubakar, who is the People's Democratic Party candidate, what are they saying they will do about the security situation? And are there major differences in how various parts of the political spectrum approach security challenges in Nigeria? I think that really for now, the article following the killing in on Sunday, the article campaign has come out to outline what their response will really be. The Tinumbu campaign um, is yet to be clear. Everybody campaigned based on addressing security. But I think the problem with Nigeria is it seems there is no there is no understanding of the causes of this insecurity and attempt to address this conflict. Previous administration has focused more on the enemy-centric approach, which is getting all these fighter jets from the United States, the Toscano, um planes, getting orders from Turkey, Russia, anywhere you can actually buy weaponry. But the problems are not the problems of actually uh, that can be addressed using the kinetic approach only. It needs a lot of 
non-kinetic approaches. Approaches, And when you look at uh, one of our publications at the Center for Democracy and Development, we call it um, multiple nodes of conflict, common causes. And this is so apt just to describe that either from the north, the south of Nigeria, the northwest, the north central, the northeast, or the southwest, southeast or south-south, while the conflicts are different, but the causes are the same, it talks more about the issue of justice. They have sense of the states, uh, the heavy-handed uh, approach of the security agencies in terms of addressing this conflict, land use issues, are some of the causes. All these are not aptly addressed in terms of the response of these candidates to addressing insecurity. To address insecurity in Nigeria, you'll have to deal with the justice issue. Justice should not be delayed. Justice delayed is justice denied to the people. Could you explain or cite an example of how justice delayed has resulted in increased violence or insecurity in a particular example? Okay, thank you very much. So if I take the example of one of the notorious warlords in Northwest Nigeria, Atuji Belu. Yes, Tuji could be said to be playing to emotions. But when you listen to his story, which resonates with all the other bandits, Lord, it comes to the issue of cattle. See, okay, uh, according to Tuji, they, they had a conflict, and within this conflict with their neighbor over grazing, they lost a thousand cattle. But it's not the lost losing the thousand cattle. They were in court for seven and a half years trying to resolve issues over this cattle. And it's in the guise of being in, in court for seven and a half years that they eventually lost all their cattle and led them to actually take up arms against the state. If you go to this northern Nigeria, the northeast of Nigeria as well, and you look at one of the COSA, uh, uh factor for the Boko Haram insurgency, it was the extrajudicial killings of over 700 of Muhammad Yusuf followers and Muhammad Yusuf himself. And within the space of time, when you look at the demand of this jihadist group then, they only wanted to see justice to be done to the perpetrators of these hearts. Eventually, justice was done. But how many people, and was it well communicated as well? It's the same way the leader of the uh, um, of IPOB, Namdekan, has been held. It was extrajudicial, or what do you call it? It was extradited back to Nigeria, even though it was with his British passport. He has now been pursuing this case since sometime last year. We are talking about over eight months. And what's the IPOD? What is that? That's the Indigenous People of Bihafra, which is okay. actually leading the secessionist agitation in the Southeast. So he was in, he's a, a secessionist leader who was yes. in the UK, was extradited back to Nigeria and is now languishing in prison, prison. without yes. trial. He was in the UK. He, he, played a, he paid a visit to Kenya and he was extradited from okay. Kenya to Nigeria. And he has been imprisoned for this period for like eight months. 
he has been going to court sometime for like three months. He was not brought to court, which led to rumor and a rise in violence in the Southeast because people believed he was killed before he was brought to court in November. But since this November, this case that he was brought to court, since November, the case has not really progressed in the way you expect a case of such a nature that has implications on national security, national unity, and if properly handled, could be could lead to a dousing in detention in that part of the country, which is now more restful, restive than any other parts of the country, where the casualties on weekly basis are higher than even where we will say that we are in a war in northern Nigeria. But somehow, this justice, this, this low will of justice is impacting, really. It's impacting. And beyond the slow will of justice, people really need just, they need to get justice. Justice shouldn't just be for the rich or the privileged. Justice should be for the poor. Because when the poor do not get justice, then they take up arms, harm themselves, and become law unto themselves. And this we have seen a lot of time doing field work, talking to our actors on different, in different parts of the country. It's been a reason. Security is growing and mutating. And so you've just identified a very profound link between improper applications of justice, the slow pace of the justice system in Nigeria, and the increasing frequency of terrorist attacks and and other forms of banditry and violence and organized violence by a panoply of armed groups across Nigeria. But you're not seeing anything from either candidates thus far, or really much conversation about this connection by Nigerian political leaders? Exactly. It's like this connection is not happening. People only think about, yes, we are going to provide jobs. Jobs are important because poverty is also one of the root causes. Yes, but it's not just poverty. The issue of justice is just one out of several issues that we really need to deal with in terms of addressing insecurity. It's not just about the guns. It's not just about building the schools to the people. You need a judicial system that works. What can the foreign policy community writ large, those who kind of listen to this podcast, those who you know, work in think tanks and governments around the world outside of Nigeria do to support the cause of strengthening the Nigerian judiciary? Is there anything that outside players can do? Any influence that outside players can wield? There is a lot to do in terms of strengthening the administration of justice system in Nigeria. It has to be both, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Both human resource is also a very important one. The numbers are too many. And the materials available are very outdated to them. At this point in time, some of the states are still doing the hand handwriting in cases. The courts, the court houses are very dilapidated. You can't compare Lagos State, for instance, to Sanfara State, not just in terms of the law, 
but in terms of the facilities that is actually available to administer the law. So the facilities are one uh, are one way to actually support training are one way is another way to support. But importantly, is pushing Nigeria to have the political will to address the criminal justice system in a bigger and a better way and pushing for accountability at all levels will become very important. Accountability for crimes committed. Well, Idaya, thank you so much for your time. This conversation took an unexpected but very interesting turn for me uh, with your identification of the link between the improper justice system and slow justice in Nigeria and the recurrence of, of armed violence. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Idiot Hassan for speaking with me. And I will return to politics in Nigeria in the run-up to these February 2023 elections. These are very big elections. Nigeria is by far the largest democracy in Africa. It has a recent history of the peaceful transition of power. And the current president, Buhari, is term-limited out of office. So there will be a new president. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. And just a disclaimer that the views and opinions expressed in this episode belong solely to those of us who expressed these views and opinions. 